If you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, We'll be looking at both accounts of the ascension from Luke, who authored the Gospel of Luke, and he also authored the book of Acts. As we look at the portion of the Creed this Sunday, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Again, found in Luke chapter 24, verse 50 to 53, and then I will move down to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And now from Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears to truly hear and see things otherwise we could not. That you would remove what blinds us. That you would be gracious to us in that way. That we may leave here changed people because of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. I want to start with a question for you this morning that'll kind of guide our time this morning. And that is, uh, where have you gone in your life? Where have you gone in your life to draw confidence for yourself? And I'm kind of intentionally putting that in the past tense because it's always good to reflect. You can, of course, apply that to what you're doing today later on over lunch. But where have you gone in your life to draw confidence in yourself? And as I thought about this question personally, you know, some of these may, you may relate to others, others, maybe you might not, but you know, an employer, for example, I got the job, right? A huge sense of confidence when Fort Worth Press hired me. Uh, marriage, another big one. Um, anybody that, that says I do to you for life, has the ability to give you some confidence. And we can certainly look to that to draw confidence for ourselves. Money, certainly a big one for me. Uh, Finally, I'm off my parents' health insurance. I'm somebody, right? Uh, College acceptance. You know, that was always, that's kind of a first step. Um, Even for some of us, a first step of rejection. But uh, getting accepted into college uh, was a big one. And then health, which will probably continue to be everything to what you might look like, your diet, how often you work out, right? These things become sources of confidence for us. And I'm using confidence in the little C, confidence at this point. 
But all of these are sources of confidence, and we know this especially when what? When they don't happen for us. Or when they just blow apart. All right, when you get that letter that says that you didn't get into the University of Tennessee, and you've got to settle for some other UT, right? You know that your confidence (laughs) is just gone. When your bank account gets overdrawn, that's a lot of fun. Or in a more serious tone, when a job you interviewed for and you wanted says, oh, but we're, we're really thinking about going in a different direction. In other words, we don't want you. Or even to never hear the words, I do, in a church at an altar from somebody at a wedding. Right? We know what it's like to feel the wind get knocked out of our sails and to have any amount of confidence uh, that we were looking from those things to be taken away. And sometimes that's actually a good thing. Don't want to move on from here without saying that. Sometimes it is a very good thing uh, to experience that. Paul even tells us this in Romans 5 where he says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. But we don't want to hear that right in the moment. We don't want to hear that when all seems to be not going our way. So this morning we're talking about the ascension of Jesus. And I want to suggest that this perhaps overlooked portion of the gospel, the ascension of Jesus, is the source of our confidence in Jesus. And therefore should be the source of our confidence in all of life. In other words, as the ascension truly really is of all those little sources, it it, it is the culmination of all of those little sources of confidence that we just talked about times infinity. It is God saying to you, you're hired. It is God saying to you, I do. It is God saying to you, you're accepted. You're rich beyond belief. You're going to live forever. This is what the ascension tells us. And it tells us this because Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the father and he reigns. That's why it tells us this. And so my aim this morning is for us to look at the ascension and to see both the power and the paradox of it as printed in your bulletin. And then how the ascension fits into the gospel story and becomes our source of true confidence for believers. To be witnesses of Christ. In the world today, in which he reigns. So let's look at that first one, the power of the ascension. You'll see there that the power of the ascension is that, as we've been saying, that Jesus is enthroned, right? That he is reigning. He is Lord, as we said several weeks ago. In other words, the loop is closed. In an article by a man named Charles Colson in By Faith magazine, Several years ago, he writes, for Luke, the ascension wraps up the unfolding story of the gospel, closing the loop Jesus publicly opened by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. That's a metaphor I want us to run with this morning. In closing the loop, Colson means that when Jesus ascends or he goes up to heaven, and we'll talk about that in the second point, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father His sitting down finalizes something for you. It finalizes the unfolding story of the gospel from Adam to Jesus. It finalizes the defeating of sin and death on our behalf through the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. 
It finalizes the promise of reconciliation and restoration of all things in this world. A new creation by God has in fact started the moment Jesus sits down, we're told. And it finalizes any question of Jesus' return and the life to come. It finalizes everything. That's what it means to say the loop is closed. And from this throne, this vantage point, this sitting down, this finalization, Jesus reigns today. This very second. Where Luke describes it in the passages that we just read, Paul, you'll notice, celebrates it. Almost in every single one of his letters, I'll pull from Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a celebration. Because if Jesus does not ascend, we'll talk about it this way. And if he does not sit down, if he is not enthroned, then the loop is not closed. And if the loop is not closed, then Jesus is not reigning. And if Jesus is not reigning today, there is no salvation for you. There's no salvation for me. There is no hope. And where there is no hope, there can be no confidence in life. But Jesus did ascend. And he did sit down. And he reigns. And the power then of the ascension for us this morning is that once he sits down, once the loop is closed, as it were, nothing can break it. That's the power of the ascension. Once he sits down, once the loop is closed, nothing can break it. And so I'll ask you, who needs to hear that this morning? Who needs to hear that Jesus reigns and is reigning and and it's never going to change? I'll ask another question. Who is cynical about that this morning? Jesus is reigning. See, it can be, as we have said, extremely difficult for us to believe into the ascension and really anything that the creed has been speaking of this summer. To believe into those things that Jesus is reigning as we look out into the world around us. And this often is the source of our cynicism, if we're honest. But if I could speak to that just a little bit this morning, our cynicism and even our skepticism, it might be the result of a misunderstanding of the ascension. In fact, it might be sort of a a false expectation that is guiding our thoughts about this whole Christianity thing in the first place. And see, by false expectation, we have somewhere in our lives picked up the idea that if God is real and if he is in control, then bad things will not happen to me or to others. I mean, I, I, I still carry that with me. So maybe I'm just putting that assumption on you and I shouldn't be doing that. But if that is you too, then you will agree. And so when bad things happen to us and we look out into this world and we try to make sense of it, our emotions skyrocket and we aren't sure what to make of it today. Something that the early church did better than us, understood better than us, I should say. Because see, when life goes bad for us and seems chaotic, we think, why should this be happening if Jesus is reigning? 
But what the early church believed is that since Jesus is reigning, whatever happens to me in this life, I'll be okay. Because this is not the end. In other words, early Christians presupposed a world still full of sin and brokenness and justice and wrongdoing until Christ's final return. And since this was their expectation, going out into the world, the presence of harm and evil did not remove the promise of Jesus' ruling. In fact, it emboldened it. Because it was their job as the church to what? Bring light into dark places. And if we are so surprised of sin and brokenness, why is the Bible talking about bringing light into darkness? Because the Bible presupposes that world in which you see and live in every day too. And one of the ways this took shape in, the, in their day-to-day lives, this is the, the early church as we, as we read, was the understanding that I am to reflect the love of Jesus to the world. And what should that look like? Well, the way that was always understood by Paul and the New Testament writers was that looks like the cross. That is, in our suffering and in our humility, we would reflect the suffering and humility of Christ to the world, for the world. And they had the confidence to do this because Jesus ascended. He sat down. The loop was closed. And nothing could touch them. Therefore, the ascension was always the source of confidence for the early church to hand over their lives and live out the realities of Jesus reigning. It was the purpose as well to be witnesses to this Jesus, to the watching world. But today, the church, if I could generalize, we see evil, we see injustices, and our first move is to necessarily, isn't necessarily to pray about that or to see it as mission. Our first move is to doubt whether God is even there. And see, so our cynicism starts to grow. Therefore, well, what I love about Luke's first account if you noticed it in Luke chapter 24 there, the first reading of the ascension, is that their response to Jesus when he ascends, and their response is not one of sadness. I need to read this. I need to see this. It's not one of sadness. It's not one of confusion or even cynicism because all of a sudden Jesus is gone and this must have been some big joke. Luke records in verse 52 that they returned with great joy. The kryptonite of cynicism. If anyone had the right to be cynical, it was Paul in his letter to the Philippians, which he wrote while he was in jail. It's said to be all about joy. And it is the power, the ascension, and the closing of that loop that gives Paul a confidence to say with all certainty... A verse that all of us love to live by and hear, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, which is his return. You can't say that if Jesus has not sat down at the right hand of the Father. You can't say that if he is not reigning. 
You can't say later on in that letter, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. You can't say that because if the loop isn't closed and if Jesus isn't reigning, he hasn't made you his own. You can't say those things, but Paul does. Why? The same reason the early church handed over their lives in the face of death. They knew the loop was closed. And if the loop was closed, which it was, and if Jesus sat down, which he did, then nothing could touch them. That is power. Oh, it's power in a very different way than we experience power today. But I would argue it's the strongest type of power. Yes, there will be suffering in this world, and all of us are tes- are, 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 can testify to that. We are witnesses of suffering in this world. But this understanding, dare I say, this expectation and belief in the, asc- in the ascension moves Paul to say, but I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, again, you can't say that if Jesus <clears throat> is not reigning, if he is not enthroned. But Jesus is, and that's the power of the ascension, and it's the source of confidence for Paul and for all who believe. But how do you live like that? All right, let's get real about this for a second, right? And notice the cynicism there. (laughs) How do you live as though nothing can touch you? Because I think things can. It seems like they can, right? How do you live as though the gospel loop is closed what is that supposed to look like today? And how do you do it without even growing cynical? And this gets us to our second point. Um, the answer to that question is knowing that the ascension of Jesus isn't the withdrawal from you, but at the indwelling of you. Okay. And this gets to the paradox of the ascension. But before we move there, I, so first, I just want to make a note real quick. I'm not saying in any way. That your cynicism, my cynicism, is a mark of unbelief. Okay? What I'm trying to get us to do is sort of look behind our cynicism. Because really, cynicism is a defense mechanism. It is sort of this, um, this trustful spirit. Because we're afraid of opening ourselves up to something. And I understand that. I think everybody understands that. I'm afraid to open myself up to something and have it not be true, to be rejected, uh, to feel that hurt and pain. And so it's easier for me to go around this world sort of being cynical about things and never really giving myself over to those things, which the creed invites us to do. But what the Bible is always putting before us and is calling us to do is to open ourselves fully to Jesus, who is also called the great shepherd. What a wonderful metaphor for cynics like myself. Because Jesus as the great shepherd, what he leads us, he protects us, he gives us rest and is with us even until death. And the reason, the reason we can consider opening our lives to him without fear, being hurt or refused, is because he has already opened himself to us. He did it first by laying himself down on his cross. And giving himself for you. This is who you are going to. Right? This is who you are trusting as you begin to open the door, crack the door of cynicism in your life. You're going to somebody who has already given themselves to you. And again, I'm not saying that cynicism is a mark of unbelief. It can be. But what I'm encouraging you to do 
and maybe I'm speaking to myself here, is discover the true why behind that. Why are you cynical in the first place as we look at Jesus? More on that later. Okay, that was the power of the ascension, that Jesus is enthroned and the gospel loop is closed. Let's look at the paradox of the ascension. The, the paradox of the ascension, as I said earlier, is that while Jesus goes away, he draws near as well. And actually, he draws closer to us uh, than ever before. And this should give us confidence as well. In both accounts of Luke and the ascension, uh, we read that Jesus parted from them, that he, quote, unquote, went up, uh, was lifted up, um, he disappeared into some cloud. All right. So where did Jesus go? I don't know if this is a question you've ever asked before. Certainly a question I, I've asked and I, in studying this, this has been so helpful for me. I, I, I'm so glad I came across this illustration that some of you all actually might remember this, but um, way, 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 way back then, back when, when uh, Russian astronaut Yuri uh, Gagarin was the first man to enter into space. Um, you might remember that when he came down, and it's disputed as to whoever gave him or said this or whatever, but the, the story goes that when he came back down from space, as the first man to go into space, before he came back down from space, the question was posed to him, did you see God up there? Did you see God up there? Upon which Yuri said, no. Case closed, Christianity no longer real. Some people actually went that route. So this sounds silly, I get it, but when we think of the ascension, it's easy to think that Jesus is just sort of up in space somewhere. But actually, um, that's not necessarily true, even though many still sort of believe that. So where did Jesus go? And I'm going to appeal to nobody else here but J.I. Packer, who is always great in these arenas. Um, that the Bible says that G- Jesus went to heaven. And what's helpful for us at this point is to recognize that when the Bible speaks of heaven, it speaks about it in three ways. And the first way that the Bible speaks of heaven is that endless, self-sustaining life of God that existed long before creation, long before earth, right? That is heaven. But the Bible also speaks of heaven as this state of angels or men as they share the life of God, whether in foretaste now or in fullness hereafter. In this sense, Packer says the Christian's reward, treasure, and inheritance are all in heaven. And heaven is shorthand for the Christian's final hope. And in the last sense of which the Bible describes heaven what it can mean is, is the sky, which is always used as a metaphor for infinity. So there you go. Problem solved. Where is Jesus? He is in heaven. Which one? Well, it's not the third one. And it's not the first one anymore because he took on flesh. It's the second one. But in a new and an amazing, catastrophic way, he brought humanity with him into heaven. So that we too may share in the life of God as well. The point is this. Jesus is not in the sky or in outer space somewhere. And he's not in some place where you no longer have access to him. Rather, he's closer to you than ever. And this is the paradox of the ascension that while Jesus goes away, he draws near. In other words, Jesus does not withdraw from you. He indwells you. With his Holy Spirit. Jesus did not want to settle for the closeness of incarnation. I think I find that statement interesting. I think I like it too. Because sometimes I do that. 
right? I'll settle for a hug. But Jesus did not want to settle for the closeness of incarnation. He wanted to be united to you. As one pastor put it, in the incarnation, Jesus merely stood beside his disciples. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he dwells within them. The paradox, then, that Jesus doesn't just withdraw from you, he indwells you, feeds our confidence as believers. Because you are not alone. You're not alone. And you will never, ever be alone, even in death. Look at Acts again with me. This is where Luke writes that Jesus says here, I think it's verse 9, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the end of the earth. I love the word power in scripture because it comes from the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. And that image is always stuck with me. And it's the reason why it's the only Greek word I remember from seminary. But that's, that's what that means. Like That's the power that, that, that Jesus is speaking of. But Jesus says that we will receive that power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But power to do what? Right? Power to do what? To float? To fly? To fight? No, it's power to be my witness, he says. Which the Greek word there is the word for martyr. And so you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying the spirit will confirm in you my closeness. How I am with you. So that even in the face of death, you will have the power, the confidence to testify in your suffering even that I am Lord. That I reign. That the loop is closed. And that no one can touch you. Our suffering should always reflect the suffering of Christ to the world for the world. Friends, Jesus, this very second, is not up in space. He's not in some far off world that you have no access to. Jesus is right here. He indwells you by his spirit. Now, if this is true, that Jesus is not further away from you, but closer that he doesn't withdraw from you, but he indwells you. How does this change the way you live? What confidence does this bring you? Maybe it's scary because he knows more about you than you want him to know. That's next week when we talk about judgment. But how does this change for you? How does this change the way that you live? And this gets really to our conclusion, my attempt to sort of put some feet on this, where we will spend the remainder of our time. And I want to get at that question, what does this change for you? How does this confidence change the way you live? By asking sort of a more familiar one that has to do with our series, how does confessing the creed, this portion specifically, how does that matter? Why does that matter today? And so we have to remember, right, as we... Think about our series while we're doing this, that we've said two things, right? We're a creed people. We live on a thousand creeds a day, right? We do that. We love that. But the Apostles' Creed has always been the church's way of measuring all of their creeds. What is true? What is real? And in this way, as we've been saying this summer, the creed functions as a roadmap 
of reality for us. So when we lose our way following other creeds, as it were, by reciting this one, the Apostles' Creed, we are brought back to reality as the Bible sees it, not as we see it sometimes. Right, so what is confessing or believing into the fact that Jesus has ascended and he sits down and he reigns? What does that do for me today? And those two things, I actually put three things on your sheet. Disclaimer, we're going to look at two. And we're going to pick up with that third one next week. All right? So bring your bulletins back. Just kidding. Two things and then we'll be done. Uh, first, there is confidence. Believing into or giving your life over to the truth that Jesus, Jesus is reigning and the loop is closed gives you the only source of confidence you will ever need in this life. And let me give you one example of this from Scripture, and that's Peter. I, I love Peter's life. If you ever had a chance to listen to a series on his life, I would encourage it. Because I see so much of my own life in Peter, not in sort of the apostleship side of things, but in the just fumbling around, gets it one minute, doesn't get it the next, constantly needing grace type of way. And that's Peter's life, right? If you think about the bookends of Peter's life from the time that he is called by Jesus to the time that Jesus uh, ascends, and then he goes on to be uh, one of the church, one of the apostles, one of the church fathers, you'll see a dramatic change there that scholars point to all the time. And I think it's worth noting. And and, and the, the fulcrum of that, obviously for Peter in his life was always the denial of Jesus, right? Jesus, you know, having just said to him, I will never deny you, right? We all know the story. He denies him three times the very next day. Right there to his face. And see, it's, it's beautiful because we're supposed to see ourselves in that too, right? Like you are somebody in your sin who has denied Jesus over and over and over again. And it's at this place where at this moment for Peter's life, all we see is fear. All we see is cowardice. All we see is anything but confidence, no super spirituality whatsoever. But then something happens, something between then and the time we get to Acts chapter two and even in chapter four, where Peter just sort of shows up and we've seen him a couple of times since then, but he shows up with this confidence, this boldness, even to preach the gospel, even in the face of death. And in Acts chapter four, Luke goes so far as to record it where he's been arrested. And he knows that those who had even arrested him, recognize, quote, the boldness of Peter and John and perceive that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they knew that he had been with Jesus. What changes someone like this is my point of drawing out Peter. What changes somebody from going from this person who denies him, who is essentially a coward to somebody who now has this boldness, this confidence to go out into the world and, and, and be witnesses of Jesus. What changes is the presence of Jesus restoring Peter and indwelling Peter because he reigns. That's it. See, we say, I don't know if I can open myself up to that. I mean, Peter did get to see the resurrected Jesus. He got to be restored. I get it. Man, if I could just do that. I would not have this cynicism. But we say also, if we're we're, we're more honest, I just don't know if I can open myself up to that. Because it sounds so good. It sounds sounds like it might even be true, but 
I don't think that I can. And here's the irony for us this morning that we've got to grab a hold of. You are opening yourself up to something. Because that's what worship is. And so you will leave here today. And you will go back and return to a thousand different things. And a thousand different ways of, of things in this world. People, relationships, whatever it is, money. Who have constantly let you down. But you will go back to them over and over and over again. Knowing and hoping even. That this will be the time. This will be the moment where it doesn't let me down. But it won't. It won't be that moment. It will be the same thing over and over and over again. Why? Because we all have to open ourselves up, even the most cynical in this room, to something. And you do it in a thousand different ways every day. There is no confidence in this world outside of the reign of Jesus. And the creed pulls us away from that hopelessness and into a reality where the object of our affection, if we're willing, Jesus has made it impossible for you to be let down because he has taken on all that ultimately seeks to destroy you and to let you down, which is death. Most beautiful story in the world. He has taken it all on and he has come out victorious and he has ascended and he has sat down to finalize the promises made of everlasting life with him. How then would your life begin to change if you had confidence like this? To live as though the loop was closed, friends, and that nothing could touch you. Instead of going out into all those other areas, into all those other relationships, into all those other pleasures and things, looking and hoping that this will be the source of confidence this one last day. That it will actually give me what I've always wanted it to give me. When the only thing that can do that is staring at you right now in the face. It's Jesus. There is no confidence in this world. And because that's true, there's no hope in this world outside of Jesus' reign. It's the type of confidence that guided the church and will continue to guide the church throughout all centuries. It's the ability for the church to feel on top of the world when in fact the world was really on top of it. But to go on smiling because that is where Christ shines the brightest. When we believe into the ascension, we are giving ourselves over to this reality where this type of confidence can be possessed. You can have it. This was Peter's source of confidence. But you might have to adjust your expectations. Don't think for a second that Peter just turned the corner one day. He just sort of like, oh yeah, I got this. I mean, the questions, am I forgiven? Am I restored? Can I really do this? Is this really true? Had to go back and forth, back and forth between Peter and his mind. But we learned something about Peter that I think we can also take away this morning. And that is Peter didn't stop praying about this. Peter didn't leave. And it's here that I really first keep praying and asking for God to show himself to you. Don't stop even in your cynicism or whatever place you find yourselves because Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns and he sits down at the right hand. Because that's true, you have access to God. And that is an incredible resource at your fingertips, friends. 
It's, it's not the thing that seems most dramatic, but it's the thing that we see played out all throughout Scripture in these moments. Keep praying because Jesus sits at his throne. Second, for the sake of time, believing into or giving your life over to the truth that Jesus is reigning and that the loop is closed also gives us purpose today. This is a sort of byproduct of this confidence. Alistair McGrath says, faith in the ascension does not mean any diminished interest in the world. It means a renewed commitment to that world and new resources with which to meet its needs and cares. In other words, because of the ascension, the church exists. That's where Luke places it, right? It's right at the end of the gospel, the beginning of Acts. Because of the ascension, the, true, the church exists. And there is no church if Jesus does not reign. None of this gets started. And if it does, it certainly doesn't last. There's your hope. Do you think, this is, do you think we're here today if Jesus isn't reigning? Because I imagine that those first Christians were done once they saw their parents and children get drug off and killed. I find huge encouragement and confidence in the communion of saints, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, because it testifies to the witness of Jesus himself, which is what the church has been called to do throughout all of the ages. And it's why the ascension sits at this middle point for Luke and his gospel. Jesus ascends and he sits down and it gives us his spirit and the church goes to work. Why? Because Jesus reigns. Because of Jesus' reign, it comes with a renewed commitment to this world and his kingdom. Consider World War II like, and look at you know, all that took place in the world to fight evil and establish peace there for a second. It is the victory over the Nazi party and the Japanese empire that more than ever renews, right? A commitment to the world. Is it not one, right? We would say to ensure that the world doesn't see this type of evil again, but two, to plant and to grow a new world of peace and mutuality where humanity flourishes. That is a micro what the church is now called to do. Because Jesus reigns. It's the same for the church. With the victory of Jesus over sin and death, our purpose in this world changes forever. We live as witnesses to this grace. And we do so even at great expense to ourselves in suffering. Because that, again, is where Jesus has always shined the brightest in this world. But friends, it's not just the big stuff. This means it's, it's it's the small and mundane stuff, too, that has new purpose. Because Jesus reigns and he has closed the loop. All of life is to be lived out as an expression of this reign. Your everyday life matters here because Jesus is reigning as king and as ambassadors of the king. You are always, listen to this, reflecting to those him who dwells inside you. Do you see that? In every business meeting, in every diaper you change, in every meal that you eat, in vacation you take, every wedding or funeral, and everything in between. With Jesus' reign comes a renewed commitment to the world and his kingdom. And your lives as the church are always, 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 and this is the expectation, your lives are the front line of this. And we will take hits. 
The church always has. So let's adjust that expectation appropriately. But this gives us more purpose than anything else in this world. So here's the question. Are you living life in search of purpose and identity? Are you living life in search of purpose through other things and other people? Are you in, quote unquote, pursuit of purpose? There are a million creeds that talk about this. Or are you living as one who has purpose that then informs your life? Are you living as someone who has been given purpose by a king who reigns and that then informs your living? Because as believers, our lives are always informed by the latter. Jesus gives us our purpose as witnesses, and that informs my living. It informs why I'm here. It informs what I'm doing, and it informs why it matters. How then, and in what ways, might the church need to renew its commitment in the world of today because Jesus reigns? How might we rethink what the church should look like based on what the world needs right now because Jesus reigns? The world is different today than it was 50 years ago, 30 years ago, shoot, 10 years ago. And let's think big here too, right? Let's not think small. Remember, this has to land somewhere. Let's use our imaginations. As God has given those to us, let's dream a little, shall we? Let's wonder what we can be in this church, in this city, for the world and for neighbor, for rich or for poor, for the foreigner, for the statesman, for the cynical and the joyful. For all who bear the image of God, we have to think big and we can. Why? Because we have all the confidence in the world, in the cosmos, if you will, to do so. Why? Because Jesus has ascended, friends. And he has sat down and he is reigning and he has closed the loop. And nothing or no one can touch you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to allow this mind-boggling truth to enter into our minds and hearts? Would you help us to understand what you want us to do with the confidence that you are reigning? That truly not even death can touch us because of you. And how would you have your church respond? Would you show us? Would you guide us in that? Would you teach us to care about that? in ways that perhaps we have not. And in the midst of this, would you allow Jesus to shine brighter for us that as we go out on the front line to serve, that we would do so in a way that allows Jesus to shine brighter for a world that he has died for. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.